Right, good afternoon, folks. Uh, my name is Tom McFadden, the Director of Admissions here at Christendom. Uh, I know most of you. Those welcome, welcome here to Christendom. Um, Dr. Carroll is the uh, founder of Christendom College, first president, and a great historian uh, who's written many volumes on, on Catholic Church history as well as Western civilization. And for most of us here we, at Christendom, we study his works in great detail and hold them up to be uh, great great works of, of uh, Catholic history and very inspiring. And Dr. Carroll is well known for his the way he tells his stories, and um, his kind of that, his personal take on making history come alive, not just being a bunch of dates and numbers, but real people that one man made it can make a difference is the famous line he has that I know for myself when I was a student before I took history with Dr. Carroll, I, I didn't like history. And then after uh, taking history and then later reading more of his books, I very much did like history and uh, I found it very useful in my life of, uh, in many ways for the history aspect to it. So. I personally credit Dr. Carroll with, with uh, helping me understand the Catholic view of history and how the fact that different individuals can be history makers to change the world. Well, tonight, today, Dr. Carroll will be speaking on Queen Isabel, who is one of his, his uh, great uh, people that he, he loves to talk about. And uh, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, he's trying to, to help in the in checking out, getting her canonization going. Uh, and so he's, a, he's a, a, a good source for that. So this should be a very interesting topic. I welcome Dr. Carroll. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to come back to Christendom, site of so much of my life's work. <clears throat> this lecture is dedicated, as was my biography of Queen Isabel, when it was published in 1991. To my late mother, Gladys H.D. Carroll, best-selling novelist of her native Maine, and the center and anger of my life through most of the 20th century, which is ruled by the devil, who's, whom she drove from me with the aid of my dear wife, Anne. I said of my mother in the, that 1991 dedication, she first taught me the greatness a woman can achieve and the strength of character and goodness and virtue, which a woman can have and inspire in a man, and so prepared me one day in the autumn of her life and mine to write this biography of Isabel of Spain, the Catholic Queen. Every word of that is still true, though my mother died at the end of the 20th century. Fortunately, she lived long enough to read this biography, which I hope some of you will do. Queen Isabel was the greatest woman ruler in history and made her country of Spain the supreme power in the world of her time. She is Spain's national heroine. She sent Christopher Columbus on his epical voyage of discovery across the Atlantic Ocean where he found America and thereby changed history. The Pope gave her the title La Catolica, which means the Catholic. All her life, she was a woman of profound humility and prayer. In her native Spanish, her name was written Isabel. We know her as Isabella because when Italian historians, who were most of the historians of her day, wrote of her, they added the final vowel to her name because the Italian language always does that, but she never did. Few lives have affected so many people across the world as the life of Queen Isabel. She was the first to reform the church. She refused to permit the enslavement of Indians. 
when a lone penniless sea rover from the Italian city of Genoa came to her with a dream so unique, so otherworldly, that few others and none in positions of authority had been able to follow it even in imagination. She brought it to reality, though she knew little of world geography or navigation. She was able to do this because of her superb judgment of men. Her patronage of Christopher Columbus was directly responsible for the greatest geographic discovery in history, for the opening of a new world, and eventually for the baptism and conversion of millions of souls who had never heard of Jesus Christ before the admiral she sent across the unknown sea had reached them. Columbus told her that his voyage would expand Christianity, and it did so to an extent probably neither of them could have imagined, could ever have imagined. Studying the life of Queen Isabel will inspire your children because her life shows that in the midst of a corrupt culture, a person of virtue and determination can change history. You can tell the story of Isabel to your younger children. Your older children can read for themselves. They can be encouraged by her example to hold fast to their Catholic faith no matter how anti-Catholic the culture around them may be, to fight the evils in that culture and with God's help to change it for the better. At the time of Isabel's birth in 1451, Spain was not a united nation, but a group of independent kingdoms, including Granada, which was still ruled by Muslims. The greatest of the kingdoms was Castile. Isabel was the daughter of the king of Castile and his second wife, Isabel of Portugal. The king was named Juan, and King Juan died in 1455, and his son by his first marriage, Henry IV, became king. The queen mother took her two children, Isabel and Alfonso, to a place called Arevalo. Henry gave her only a small allowance, and they were often in want. Isabel was a spirited child and learned to ride and hunt as well as any boy. Henry's court was the most corrupt in Europe. A favorite daily pastime at his table was the invention of blasphemies. He was unfair and would go from excessive leniency to excessive severity. Public and private morality were at a low point. He even gave bandits permission to collect taxes. The king ordered Isabel and Alfonso brought to court in 1462 to get them under his control. But at the corrupt court, Isabel was incorruptible. In July 1465, the Marquis de Vienna led a rebellion against Henry. Weekly, Henry agreed to give Vienna more power and to marry Isabel to Vienna's brother, Pedro Hiron. Hiron was 43 years old. Isabel, 15. He was one of the most corrupt men in Spain, even looking the part with his sinister black mustache. Isabel was horrified at the thought. Her best friend, Beatrice de Bobadilla, grabbed a dagger and said, You will never marry that monster, for I swear before God that if he comes to take you, I will plunge this into his heart. Isabel replied, No, God abhors violence. She fasted for three days and prayed before a crucifix. Dear God, compassionate Savior, do not let me, let me be given to this man. Either let, let him die or let me die. 
The king would not listen to her pleas and sent for Pedro to come to the court in haste. The city was in a bustle with gowns and decorations being prepared for the wedding. Heron was riding north. He and his entourage stopped the night at the little town of Villa Rubia de los Ojos, Villa Rubia of the Eyes, and there his companions noticed that Pedro Heron was swaying in his saddle. They helped him down from his horse. Fever was flaring through his body. His throat was burning and filling with alien matter. He called for water, but he could not drink. The next day he grew worse, the next worse still, choking, strangling, cursing God with his last breath because he had not let him live to claim his virgin bride on the third day. Pedro Heron died. Prayers are answered, as Isabel the Catholic had always known and would never forget. Vienna now persuaded the king to marry Isabel to the weakling King Afonso of Portugal, known as Afonso the Fat, to get her out of the country. Henry told her to consent or be imprisoned, but she held out for Ferdinand, correctly called Fernando, the heir to the throne of the kingdom of Aragon, insisting, contrary to the usual practice of her time regarding royal marriages, on the right to choose her own husband. She made excuses to delay the Portuguese marriage, and messengers were sent to Aragon, the Spanish kingdom second only to Castile in prestige and power. Isabel's two messengers reached the capital of Aragon on September 25, 1469. This was not a good time to find a bridegroom. Fernando was fighting for his father against rebels. His mother had just died and his father was going blind from cataracts. Fernando agreed to the marriage, but said he uh, couldn't wait. Uh, <clears throat> said he would come later, as soon as the affairs settled down in Aragon. But Isabel couldn't wait. She sent a swift messenger to Fernando, pleading for the love of God, come. Fernando's father cleared his vision by a double cataract operation without anesthetics. They had no such things in those days. Fernando could not resist her plea. Knowing that Henry's troops guarded the border to prevent his entry, he disguised himself as a mule driver and took two friends disguised as merchants. As Henry rode north, a small caravan of merchants came west. They traveled unusually fast, well into the night. The young mule driver was especially handsome, but seemed nervous, pacing the courtyard at night. The second night out, he reached the city of Burgos, the first friendly castle. It was late at night, and the castle was locked. Fernando ran ahead and knocked. The guards of the castle, expecting the worst, pelted him with rocks. He shouted, Do you want to kill me, you fools? It's Don Fernando. Let me in. On October 11th, Fernando and Isabel met for the first time in Valladolid, where they were married October 18th. Henry left them alone, and they knew peace and happiness. In October 1470, their first child, little Isabel, was born. By her marriage to Fernando and the love that sealed it, and the unity and harmony of both of them in action, she not only unified Spain for the first time in its history, a unity which endures to this day, but combined the duties of queen, wife, and mother that often seem incompatible. 
through no less than 36 years of the most intimate private, public and private union, attested for all time by their precious personal correspondence which has survived the centuries. It was always tanto monta, monta tanto, Isabel como Fernando, their motto which means Isabel amounts to Fernando, Fernando amounts to Isabel. When Fernando was almost assassinated in 1492, Isabel blamed it on her sins. Henry died on December 12, 1474. The next day, the Feast of St. Lucy, Isabel was crowned Queen of Castile. Isabel and Fernando now confronted the Castile on the brink of disaster. They had no money and no army. They faced anarchy, corruption in the church, corruption in the government, nobles too powerful, currency and economic affairs in chaos, the Muslims raiding across the border, the border, and Portugal attacking as King Alfonso the Fat hoped to conquer Castile. Their first task was to defeat Portugal. Alfonso's army was poised on the border. He had much support from Spanish nobles who feared Isabel would take away some of the power they had gained from the weak Henry. Isabel rolled from town to town to get help. She raised money, soldiers, and supplies. She put her trust in God and spared herself not at all, riding tirelessly. She suffered a uh, miscarriage of her first pregnancy. Eventually, she assembled an army of 42,000. Fernando trained them while she gathered supplies. A nobleman in the area went over to Afonso, leaving Fernando isolated. He was forced to retreat, and the army broke up. Isabel had to start all over. By December 1st, Fernando had a new army. He commanded the troops in the field, but the overall strategy was Isabel's. She positioned the troops and ordered the attacks. In the camp, she insisted on high moral standards and daily mass. No soldier is known to have objected. Finally, in March 1476, Afonso was defeated and surrendered. Isabel ordered the clergy to march through the streets, singing the Te Deum and Thanksgiving. She went barefoot to the monastery of St. Paul to give thanks. Having defeated the foreign enemy, Isabel and Fernando now turned toward the internal enemy of the bandits. They decided to survive, revive the Santa Ermandad, or Holy Brotherhood. The Santa Ermandad was a domestic police force set up in each town to keep law and order. Every hundred families would pay for one horseman, his arms and equipment. The Ermandad was especially popular among the poor because now they had protection from bandits. Soon banditry was wiped out in Castile. Isabel rode from town to town to hear complaints and order reconciliations and restitutions. She was impartial and incorruptible. For example, in Medina del Campo, a poor woman came to her to complain that her husband had disappeared after a visit to a wealthy nobleman. The man's body was found on the nobleman's property. The wealthy man offered Isabel a bribe of a hundred thousand ducats to overlook the case. Isabel investigated, found the man guilty, and had him executed. On June 30th, 1478, she gave birth to her son Juan. She moved to Toledo, where her daughter Juana 
was born on November 6, 1479. In 1481, she sent her fleet to fight the Turks in the Mediterranean. With Fernando, she traveled to Aragon to have Prince Juan acknowledged as the heir to the throne. In Aragon, only a son could inherit the throne. In 10 months, she rode 2,000 miles on horseback, though she was expecting another child in the summer of 1482. At Christmas time in 1481, the Muslims raided across the border, slaughtering and enslaving Christians. Isabel made up her mind to rid Spain of the Muslims at last and complete the war known as the Reconquista or Reconquest the longest war in the history of the world, which lasted 722 years. There were three million Muslims still in Spain. Their capital was the high-walled city of Granada, on a mountain slope surrounded by 20 fortified mountain cities. Isabel's armies would have to take the forts one by one. Isabel planned strategy right up to the birth of her daughter Maria. 1483 was the year of defeats. Isabel prayed for guidance and rode from town to town, restoring shattered morale. Nothing could cause her to give up because she knew the war was just because the Muslims had been attacking Christians for almost 800 years. At the end of 1484, the Marquis of Cadiz captured the Muslim fortress of Zahra by scaling the walls while the Muslims were asleep during the noon siesta. In 1485, Isabel planned systematic siege warfare to replace scattered raids and forays. She assembled an army and equipment. She organized the Queen's Hospital with field nurses to care for the sick and wounded, then a novel idea in warfare. Thanks to Isabel's new siege weapons, giant cannon, the army was victorious. Many Christian prisoners were released, ragged and starving. Isabel received them on the steps of the cathedral, and they cheered their queen and liberator. A Christian force was ambushed in the mountains. She decided to besiege two neighboring castles in strategic locations. The passage to the castles was too narrow for the cannon. Though she was six months pregnant, she rode out to inspect the passes. Since they couldn't move the cannon through the mountain, she decided to move the mountain. She brought in 6,000 men to dig and blast the road. Working day and night, they built a nine-mile road in 12 days. The Muslims had been laughing at the Christians. They woke up to see the Spanish guns pointing at their walls. On December 15th, Isabel's last child, Catherine, was born. Have you ever heard of Catherine of Aragon? She was Queen of England, the one who would accept divorce from Henry VIII. That's this Catherine, Isabel's daughter, who is the most like her of any children. In January 1486, Isabel was in Cordoba. A man in frayed clothing arrived and asked for the king and queen. His name was Christopher Columbus, and Isabel was impressed by his plan to sail west to reach the Far East. Defeating the Muslims came first, though, and she had to tell him that she could not help him at that time. In 1488, the Christian armies were less successful, and Spain was swept by the by plague. Isabel spent the winter in prayer and fasting. 
1489, she pawned her jewels and heirlooms to raise more money. Fernando was at Baza and wanted to retreat in the face of a superior force. Isabel said no, and the men supported her decision. The Muslims came out on the walls of the city to catch a glimpse of the legendary queen. Before the end of the year, Baza surrendered. In 1490, she led her armies on to Granada, the capital city of the Muslim kingdom. Young Juan, was in, was in, her son, was knighted and rode with his father. The Spanish camped outside the walls of the city, Isabel and Fernando living in the tent in the encampment. The Muslims sent a commando to set her tent on fire. The fire spread throughout the camp, but fortunately few lives were lost. Isabel decided to replace their camp of tents with a city of stone near Granada under the eyes of the Muslims. The city was finished in three months and named Santa Fe, Holy Faith. On the topmost tower was placed a silver cross of the crusade and the banners of Castile and Aragon. The building of this city showed Isabel's determination and demoralized the Muslims. By November 1491, Granada was so low on food that the Muslims asked to be in peace negotiations. Isabel gave generous terms, saying that they could keep their language, customs, and property. The Muslim leader, Bob Deal, formally surrendered on January 1st, 1492. So it's not, not coincidence that that was the year. The cross and the flags were put at the highest point in Granada, and all the Spaniards knelt in the dust. Four days later, on the Feast of Epiphany, Isabel, Fernando, and their children led a triumphal procession into the city. For the first time in 770 years, Christians ruled Granada. All Europe rejoiced in Spain's victory. Then Columbus reappeared. Isabel still had no money, but the Santa Hermandad offered to loan the money necessary to finance his voyage. She signed an agreement naming Columbus Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Columbus' ship sailed flying a flag with the initials of Fernando and Isabel on it. Isabel's the head work to do. Working with the saintly Cardinal Ximenez, Isabel reformed the church in Spain, getting rid of such evils as the selling, selling of indulgences. By anticipating the complaints of Martin Luther, Isabel and Ximenez spared Spain the evils of the Protestant revolt. In March 1493, Isabel received the first reports from Columbus, who had come back to him from his voyage to America. She and Fernando stood as godparents for the baptism of the Indians he brought back with him. In 1496, the royal family celebrated the double wedding of Juan and Juana to Margaret and Philip, the son and daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian. Juana was sulky and moody, Philip selfish and irresponsible. Their marriage was stormy and tragic. Margaret and Juan were deeply in love and a delightful couple. Then Isabel began receiving disturbing reports that Juan was ill. He died on October 3rd, 1497, only 18 years old. This was a great personal sorrow for Isabel, but it was also a tragedy for her plans to unite Spain. 
since Aragon would not accept a woman ruler, Juan was to have been the heir to both Castile and Aragon, and thereby bring the two kingdoms together. The new heir was Isabel's grandson Miguel, son of her oldest daughter. But Miguel died in Isabel's arms at the age of two. Now the inheritance passed to Juana's oldest son, Charles, born in 1500. But no one could know what he would be like, given the poor quality of character of his parents. His mother, Juana's moodiness, slipped into insanity. It was Juana's insanity which tested Isabel in a way that no other crisis she had faced had tested her. Juana had an obsessive attraction for her husband, Philip. In 1503, Philip was in Flanders, Juana in Castile. Between them was France, which was at war with Fernando. Juana irrationally decided that she must cross France to reach Philip. She would listen to no arguments, no alternative plans, no appeals for delay. She was going, she was going at once, and there was nothing more to be said about it. Isabel ordered the gates locked so Juana could not leave the castle. What followed was the stuff of nightmare. Juana raged, she screamed, she howled. She gripped and tried to shake the iron bars and the cold stone of the battlements of the fortress, and she would not let go. Hour after hour, her face distorted and her knuckles white, she clung to them. Night fell. Still Juana would not move. Her skin blanched, her body shivered, but she did not seem to notice. When at last the sun rose, Juana was still gripping the wall. Messengers reached Isabel. She had no choice but to go to her daughter. Only a year away from her death, sick in mind and heart and body, she nevertheless covered 17 miles a day. After a three-day journey, she arrived at the gate. She walked slowly, her once strong athletic legs swollen with the beginnings of the dropsy that was so great to afflict her in the subsequent years. Her daughter looked up from where she crouched, clinging to the stones of the wall, as she had clung for six full days and nights and loosed upon her mother a torrent of obscene vituperation. Quote, she spoke such words to me, Isabel said later in the saddest letter she ever wrote, as no daughter should say to a mother, which I would never have endured had I not seen the condition she was in. End quote. Yet Isabel endured, and when Juana's insane fury was for the moment spent, Isabel drew upon the deepest wells of strength in her own being and in the precious blood of her Lord, who died upon her cross and spoke to Juana as a mother to a child, a desperately sick child, who even in delirium still knows her mother's voice. Her mother was calling her in out of the cold and the dark. Juana got to her feet, stepped away from the wall, and went with her mother to her room. Yo vine y la meti, Isabel said. I came and put her in. In 1501, Isabel's youngest daughter left for England to marry the heir to the English throne. Isabel did not live to see the sufferings Henry VIII would inflict on the woman known in history as Catherine of Aragon. Isabel died on November 6, 1504, wearing the humble habit of a Franciscan nun. 
as she lay dying, she said to Fernando, Do not grieve for me. I'm very tired and ready to go. She left Desert Lakes, Spain, a country which she had almost single-handedly forged out of the chaos, out of chaos, and saved from its enemies and endowed with a deep Catholic spirit. She truly deserved the title which the Pope bestowed on Isabel and Fernando, Los Reyes Católicos, the Catholic Sovereigns. Isabel's cause for canonization in the Catholic Church has been launched. She is now officially designated servant of God, the first step to canonization. Why is it not proceeded further? Many think it is because she unjustly expelled all the Jews from Spain. But in the fallen world, no one, not even a saint, who rules for 30 years, as Isabel did, is just in every official action, any more than any man or woman who lives nearly that long fails to commit some sin. Even Pope John Paul the Great went regularly to confession. There was so much justice associated with every other aspect of Isabel's life and rule that the balance tipped overwhelmingly in her favor. She founded, she founded the Spanish Inquisition, which those who know only its black legend count against her. But recent research has reported and explained on a BBC broadcast aired in this country by the History Channel and summarized in a recent book by Henry Kamen, a Jewish historian, by the way, simply entitled The Spanish Inquisition, has shown that this black legend rests on no documentary evidence whatsoever but only on English and Dutch Protestant propaganda at a time when both those countries were at war with Spain. Isabel took a country which in the reign of her pathetic half-brother who preceded her on the throne of Castile had become the laughingstock, the whipped dog of Europe and made it the greatest power in the world. She did this by no harsh and domineering rule, but by bringing justice and peace integrity and incorruptibility, care and honor with her wherever she went. Above all, she brought love, which is Pope Benedict XVI has just taught us in his first great encyclical, is God, the love she bore her people and the love they bore her in return. European capable kings in her time, but no other who could have faced down, as she did, riding a mob of thousands with only three companions, as she did at Segovia when her young daughter was locked up in its castle in 1476. She could do that only because of the love she gave to her people and the love she received from them. Fernando and Isabel won the longest war in history, 772 years against the Muslim Moors, with the conquest of Muslim Granada in the south of Spain in 1492. Though Fernando as a great warrior and general played a major part in that splendid triumph, the evidence is overwhelming that it would not have been achieved without Isabel. To begin this ultimately victorious war was Isabel's decision in response to the Moorish seizure of the Spanish border fortress of Zahara. More than once during the ten years required to win that victory, Fernando wavered and was distracted, while Isabel was ever constant. Whenever she was needed a chance at the call, she marshaled the soldiers, sent the food, and brought up the guns. When morale faltered, 
she came in person to the battlefront, to army camps outside the besieged Moorish cities, to inspire her soldiers. She inspired them as no woman but St. Joan of Arc has ever inspired soldiers. She and her husband were buried in Granada together, side by side, under a tombstone which commemorated them as man and wife united. Throughout her life and through all these achievements, Isabel preserved both an absolute purity, though she lived at court and reigned in Renaissance Europe, when scandal was almost universal and expected of everyone, when even the Pope had illegitimate children. Isabel had to carry heavy crosses. Her only son died tragically in the flower of his youth. Her oldest daughter and namesake died in childbirth. Another daughter, Juana called the mad, went insane. The succession of tragedies was Isabel's cross, which she carried as a true Christian. She had to wait another generation for her spiritual son, her grandson Charles V, who became a Holy Roman Emperor as well as King of Spain, and denounced Martin Luther to his face, inspired, as he said, by the memory of his ancestors, one of whom was Queen Isabel. If Emperor Charles had not kept the Catholic faith, Christendom would have been lost. It was Charles who saved it more than any other person. Isabel never saw Charles, and he had no memory of her, but she was a living presence in his life. When Charles told Luther that he would never abandon the Catholic faith, he spoke of being true to his ancestors. Confronting Luther face to face, the Diet of Worms in 1521, he matched any of her greatest moments when he said to the man who had made it his mission to cleave Christendom asunder, and he did just that, and it remains cloven to this day. Quote, Ye know that I am born of the most Christian emperors of the noble German nation, of the Catholic kings of Spain, the archdukes of Austria, the dukes of Burgundy, who are all to the death true sons of the Roman Church, of the sacred customs, decrees, and uses of its worship, who have bequeathed all this to me as my heritage, and according to whose example I have hitherto lived. Thus I am determined to hold fast by all that has happened since the Council of Constance. For it is certain that a single monk must err if he stands against the opinion of all Christendom, otherwise Christendom itself would have erred for more than a thousand years. Therefore I am determined to set my kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul upon it. End quote. That, always remember, is the ultimate argument against Protestantism, uh, that one monk must err if he goes against the opinion of all Christendom for a thousand years. So Queen Isabel's grandson kept the faith and saved Christendom. His grandmother spoke through him in that decisive world-changing moment. When Charles came to Spain in 1517, he was only 17 years old. Born and baptized at Ghent in Belgium, he was a total foreigner in Spain, speaking not a word of Spanish. Later he used the Spanish language by choice and became a national hero of Spain, where he's called Carlos Quinto, being and doing everything Isabel could have hoped for in a son. When Isabel died in 1504, it seemed as though the whole world mourned. Christopher Columbus, the man through whom she had changed history, said of her 
in a letter to his son Diego in December 1504, one month after his de her death, quote, that the most important thing is to commend lovingly and with much devotion the soul of the Queen Our Lady to God. Her life was always Catholic and holy and prompt in all things in his holy service. Because of this, we should believe that she is in holy glory beyond the cares of this harsh and weary world. End quote. Can we Catholics living in the land that Isabel made it possible for our ancestors to come to do her less honor than did Christopher Columbus? Isabel's achievements as a queen make her not only the greatest woman ruler in history, but at least arguably the morally best and most just woman ruler in history. But sanctity demands more than that. Great as her grandson Charles was, extraordinary and indispensable, as were her accomplishments of the church and for Christendom and for his country. One could not seriously make a case for his canonization. After all, he had two illegitimate children. With Isabel, we can make such a case. There can be no possible doubt or question that from the very earliest notices we have of her and her girlhood until her last hour, Isabel the Catholic lives a life of prayer. I know because I have read every word that she ever wrote and everything that was written about her in and shortly after her lifetime. Again and again, especially at critical moments in her life, and even in the rare times of tranquility, we hear of her devotion to prayer, her assiduity in prayer, the length of time she spent in converse with God. That her prayer had power, that God did respond to it, was amply proved early in her life by the fate of Pedro Hiron, who was selected to her be a husband, her husband when she was only 15, and died after Isabel prayed that either he or she would die before they could be married. There are many other examples of God's response to her prayers, as she surmounted immense and apparently insuperable obstacles in the war of succession with Portugal and in the war with Granada for the final reconquest of Spain for Christianity. In her last years, when she was bearing the cross with Christ, most of her prayers were not answered from the world's viewpoint. But then she was with her Lord in Gethsemane, when his prayers were not answered either from the world's point, viewpoint. He lived the, she lived the commandments. She loved God with all her heart, with all her soul, and with all her mind. She forgave those who had wronged her. Again and again we see her doing so. She loved her people, loved the poor, saved the native of, natives of the Canary Islands and of America from enslavement by rapacious governors and other officials. She did not envy or covet. One may search her writings and actions in vain for any examples of petty jealousy and spite for anyone with whom she ever had to deal. She honored her father and her mother, though they had left her a princess alone among designing predatory men. Her insane mother lived to a great age. Isabel always took care of her. She loved her children, husband and her children with a profound love. In her family circle, she was a dutiful wife, submissive to her husband, seeing no contradiction in that with a public place as an equal queen of Castile as he, as he was king of Aragon. 
No more chaste ruler ever graced a throne. No more chaste woman ever sat by a fireside with her husband and children. No breath of scandal ever touched her personal life. She crowned her goodness with humility. No one who reads Isabel's letters and studies her actions with any serious reflection can doubt the profundity and sincerity of her humility, revealed with special clarity by all we know of her relationship with the first confessor, the friar and later bishop, Hernando de Talavera. Before him, she gladly knelt at his request when she made her first confession to him. It was to him that she wrote when Fernando lay in the shadow of death from the assassination attempt upon him in 1492, blaming herself and her sins for what had happened to her. We may well imagine that her humility caused her to ask herself many times in her last year how much responsibility she bore for the tragic insanity of her daughter, Juana. But her resolute realism and common sense rescued her even in those dark years from the perversion of humility, which is self-contempt and despair, which is the sin against the Holy Ghost. She knew and practiced all the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, in an exalted, even heroic manner. She maintained them in the face of an avalanche of personal grief, including the death of her only son, of her firstborn daughter, of her baby grandson who died in her arms, which would have destroyed a weaker soul, which she used to bring her closer to God. Her contemporaries uniformly and repeatedly testify to, testify to her extraordinary virtues, as are most historians since, Catholic or secular. Even those who vehemently disagree with some of her policies, such as her establishment of the Spanish Inquisition, cannot deny her spotless moral integrity the harmony of her life with her faith, and the justice and benevolence of most of her rule. Some have argued that more of the credit for the achievements of her reign belongs to Fernando than is usually accorded to him. That would have pleased Isabel, who was always more than willing to give her beloved husband credit for anything they did together. But in evaluating such claims, the historian need look no farther than a comparison of the sorry record of Fernando without Isabel after she had died to his magnificent record while she was still at his side. Isabel's life and virtues have special importance in an age like ours, more and more characterized by a flight by a flight from faith, morality, chastity, and responsibility, where prayer is neglected as scorn, humility is doubted, and many people become very uneasy when contemplating real and uncompromising justice. Every age needs to be reminded of the virtues it characteristically lacks, and wherever possible, through a personality, not only holy, but in some significant degree, congenial to the time. Any aspects of Isabel's personality are a timeless appeal. Her sincerity, her forthright honesty, her clear and direct mind and speech, her warmth and deep feelings, her love for her husband and children. Her achievements as a woman will surely appeal to an age which is giving special emphasis to the scope of women's potential to contribute to society and to do well most of the things that men have commonly done in the past. 
Her care and concern for foreign peoples of a different race should appeal greatly to an age which has lavished care and concern on such people. Yet the memory of Isabel must be as incompatible with compromise on any fundamental tenet of the Catholic, of Catholic faith and morals as Isabel herself would have been. These are some of the reasons why Isabel of Spain, the Catholic Queen, deserves the honors of the office. Now, 